The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Let's uh, open our Bibles to First uh, Peter uh, chapter 3 for our third installment in First uh, Peter three thirteen to 17. And I uh, uh, feel like there's uh, a lot more that we could say, but we've got to bring it to a close sometime. Uh, but this has been uh, just a, a joy for me to be able to, uh, to preach through, to meditate on the section of Scripture. It's a se- section of Scripture that's, that's powerful, it's practical, it's relevant, as all the Scripture is, and it's also very timely. This is a, a very timely word. And I can remember when I, I read First Peter as uh, mostly a historical account. You know, that's kind of like what happened to our forefathers back there. You know, they suffered, they were persecuted, you know, they were maligned, they were mistreated, but, you know, things for, for us aren't like that now. Uh, but we're living in a period of history that's quickly approaching the same kind of context that Peter was writing to. It's like we're, we're spinning the, the hands of, of time backwards and finding ourselves with more in common with the people of Asia Minor than we ever had before. And that can be very unsettling. It can be disturbing. And frankly, for many of us, it can be frightening that we find ourselves in a position where we might face persecution. I can remember a time when being affiliated with Christianity was considered a good thing. It was a noble thing to be affiliated with Christianity. It was respectable to be a Christian. I can remember uh, my father, he was a minister, and I remember when people found out that he was a a minister, uh, they would all of a sudden excuse their French. Does anybody remember that phrase, excuse my French? You know, they've never been to a French class in their life. They never studied French a day in their life. But now all of a sudden, hey, excuse my French, excuse my French. But, But it demonstrated a certain respect for the Christian ministry. I remember when people would think twice about what they did in front of a church building. You know, they would turn down their radios if it was vulgar music that was playing. They would put their bottles behind their backs or maybe put out their cigarettes, but those days are long gone. I remember when uh, people heard that you are a Christian and there was a general acknowledgement that that's a good thing. That's good. You know, good for you. Even if they didn't believe it themselves, they would say, you know, that's, that's good for you. I'm, I'm not there yet, but, but, but would you pray for me? Would you pray for me? Now, that's the kind of response that you used to get, but we're not in Kansas anymore, right? According to one study in 2019, three in 10 Americans holds a positive perception of evangelicals, only three out of 10. And evangelicals are considered to be at the epicenter of many of the differences of opinions and worldview and practice in our nation. There's really no social benefit for being a Christian anymore. And I know I'm not the only one that's seeing this tide turning against Christianity. I'm not the only one that's seeing that. The same association that would have given you a degree of respect, at least on the surface, for having some association with Christianity, today brings shame and contempt. You know, oh, you're, you're one of those. You know, you're, you're a Christian. And you quickly find yourself on the outside of the conversation looking in, and the door is locked. And it's not just that people don't agree with our positions, but they despise our positions. Our positions are not just considered ridiculous. Today, they're considered dangerous. 
And comparisons are being made between Christians and terrorists. Did you ever remember that kind of comparison being made in your lifetime? Between Christians and, and terrorists? Our convictions about church, about marriage, about the family, about sexuality, about our identity, even our individual conscience in the sight of God, all of that is being attacked. And if you don't comply, you will pay. And there are many believers who for the first time have become fearful of what the consequences could look like. They're fearful of persecution. They're fearful of losing their jobs. They're fearful of facing jail time for their convictions. And at some level, there are believers who are even ashamed to associate themselves with Christianity. Do I, do I really have to share that I'm a believer? Do I, do I really have to make this association between myself and those evangelicals? But if you're seeking to live a godly life as a believer, there's nothing to fear and there's nothing to be ashamed about. And that's the, the lesson from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. And this has been a, a wonderful blessing just to, to meditate on uh, this week. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 13. It says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. Why don't you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this text of Scripture. We thank you for its applicability to us. We pray that you would open up the truth of this passage to us. Uh, help us to, to allow the, the truth of this passage to sink deep within our hearts, to change our thinking, to change the way that we perceive the world around us. And Father, I pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're seeking to live a, a godly life as a believer, there's nothing to fear and there's nothing to be ashamed about. There, there's nothing to fear if you commit yourself to living for Christ. In verse 13 Peter says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? If you're committed to doing the right thing, if you're, you're zealous for what's right, that, that word is, is the, the noun form of uh, the word zealous, it's zealots. If you're zealots for righteousness, you don't have to walk around in a constant state of fear. I mean, who is there to harm you? You know, there's a, a natural protection for those who do what is right. People are reluctant to harm those who are seeking their good. You know, it's a natural protection. But, and here's the contrast, even if you do suffer for the sake of righteousness, how are we to think about that? What does the text say? The text says we're to think about ourselves as being blessed. It's a word that can be translated as, as being fortunate, being well off, being well to do. It's not a statement about how you feel. It's about a statement of reality. Objectively, you are blessed. There, there's something that's praiseworthy, that's commendable about the person who's willing to suffer for the sake of righteousness. It's an evidence that you belong to the kingdom of heaven. It's rewarded by God in eternity. It places you in the company of the prophets, the apostles, and Jesus Christ himself. It glorifies God, and it shines the light of the gospel before men so that they may glorify our Father who's in heaven. That's nothing to be fearful of. It's nothing to be fearful of. If we are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, the Bible says, consider yourself blessed. That's the category that you belong in. And that's nothing to be fearful of. 
Even when our, our brother James Coates faced jail time in Canada, he, he mentioned that there was a, a general recognition among the officers and even among the inmates that he was there for the sake of the kingdom and his biblical convictions. And the light of the gospel was able to shine through that. We're not to shrink away from that. Peter says plainly, don't fear. Do not fear them. Don't, don't fear their intimidation. Don't be troubled. You know, quoting from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, in that context where Judah was given a word of encouragement to face the real enemies and real dangers around them. And in a similar way, Peter says the Christians may face real dangers, may face real enemies, but be calm, don't fear, don't be faint-hearted. Why? Because your enemies can't separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Just like the, the promises that the children of Judah had, the children of Israel had, we have similar promises. That we can't be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The Christian has nothing to fear. We don't need to faint. And also the Christian has nothing to be ashamed about. Why? Why, why don't we need to be ashamed? Because Jesus doesn't give us anything to be ashamed of. You understand that? There's, there's nothing to be ashamed about in Jesus. Why would we be ashamed of him? We're to set him apart as Lord in our hearts. We're to sanctify him. We set him apart as Lord. He is God. He's the one that I honor. He's the one that I worship. I've placed him as king. Why would I be ashamed about doing that? There's no need to back down from that kind of commitment. In 1 Peter 2.6, it says that this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. We will not be disappointed if we trust in Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of that. And even if I'm asked a direct and difficult question, I don't have to be ashamed of my answer. Why? Because I have a reason for my hope. And I can always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks me for an accounting of the hope that I have with gentleness and reverence. And that's where we left off last time. We were considering what it means to make a defense for our hope, which is really such an important concept in, in Scripture, defending our faith. But it's often a, a concept that's divorced from the surrounding context that's in 1 Peter 3. First of all, the broader context of this passage speaks about apologetics, the defense of the faith, in the context of good works, being zealous for good works. How often do you hear about that in a conversation about apologetics? The, the Christian apologist is to look for opportunities to do good for others. We're to be peacemakers, to pursue freedom from unnecessary harm, and that relates to our conduct among men. We're to seek good. We're to be zealous for good. That's, that's the responsibility of somebody who would defend the faith. And not only that, we're to be confident in the word of God. When Peter said, do not fear their intimidation, do not be troubled, as was already pointed out last week, that's a reference back to Isaiah chapter 8, where the only reason that Judah was told not to be fearful is because God has given you a word of protection. They, they didn't need to fall apart in the face of danger. It was the word of God that was spoken through the mouth of Isaiah the prophet that was to be their confidence. So they could experience a freedom from unwanted intimidation and distress. And how often do you hear about the confidence in the scriptures as the foundation and bedrock of apologetics? Unfortunately, not often enough. The scriptures are often the, the first thing that's set aside when people want to defend the faith instead of the first thing that they pick up. I, I like the illustration that Charles Spurgeon gave. He says, you don't have to defend a lion. All you need to do is let him loose. The lion will take care of himself. You know, we, we don't have to spend all this time, oh, I've got to defend the Word of God. People don't believe in the Word of God. You know, they, they don't believe that my Bible is real. Just use it. <laughs> Just start using it. 
It's, it's, it's through the, the word of God that people come to faith in Christ anyway, right? So, so let's get busy using the word of God. How many times have you heard that, you know, we, we can't use the word of God and all you're left with is possibilities and probabilities, but no certainty. It's the word of God that grants certainty. The way of the Lord, the word of the Lord gives certainty. But what if the unbeliever is not convinced that the word of God is true? What if he doesn't believe? Last time I mentioned that we would get to this more next time we were together, and here we are. So let's uh, read again in 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17 here, where it says, we're to, uh, verse 15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Why don't you uh, flip back to the book of Acts real quick, the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17. And I just want to show you an example here. Because this is another classic text that's often used for apologetics. And this is what you'll hear, okay? This is what you'll hear. You know, Acts chapter 17 makes no reference to the word of of God because, you know, Paul here is speaking to, to people that didn't believe in the word of God. You know, so you can't use the, the Word of God with people who don't believe in the Word of God. Let's take a look at uh, what the Apostle Paul actually did. Just to give you a little bit of background as to what's going on here over in Acts chapter 17. You have, uh, in Acts 17, you find Paul in the middle of his second missionary journey. One of the, uh, 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 one of the, the, the ways that uh, the Apostle uh, operated in ministry is he'd go to different cities, he'd proclaim the gospel of God, until he was thrown out. <laughs> you find in, uh, in Acts chapter 17 that he went to uh, Antioch to spread the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. In uh, Acts, we find that uh, the good news was not always received as good news because just before that, he went to Thessalonica in verses 1 through 9. Uh, the Jewish opposition, along with the help of some wicked men, formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and Paul was removed. In Berea, there was a similar kind of response. There was an agitating of the crowd, a stirring up of the crowd, about to break out in violence, and Paul again was removed. They sent him off again. And then in verse 15, we find Paul going to, to Athens to, to get out of the line of fire, but he just can't keep still. Look at Acts chapter 17. Look at verse 15. It says, Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible they left. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. MacArthur said, uh, you know, if you send a, a bricklayer to visit a city, he'll look at the bricks. If you send a policeman to a city, he'll look at the crime. If you send an architect to a city, he'll look at the, the buildings. But if you send an apostle and a theologian to a city, he'll look at the corruption, he'll look at the idolatry, and he'll see a city that needs God. And Paul was so consumed with the glory of God as he's in the city, seeing the city full of idols, he can't help himself. He's got to speak. He's being provoked within himself. Again, he sanctified Christ as Lord in his heart. Jesus Christ deserves the first place. Now he's seeing a city full of people who are removing Christ, ignoring Christ, and worshiping other gods, and he can't take it. Why? Because Christ is Lord within my heart. He's number one. He's first. Henry Martin, who wrote in his diary, he was uh, one of the missionaries sent to India from England. And he, when he went to India, he saw a Hindu temple when he first arrived. A picture of Muhammad. 
worshiping and bowing down. Uh, actually, a picture of Muhammad and bowing down before him was a picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ bowing down to Muhammad is this picture that he saw in a Hindu temple. And he says, this picture excited me, excited in me more horror than I can well express. I was cut to the soul at this blasphemy, and I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. That's the kind of reaction that Paul had to the city that was full of idols. So he begins reasoning with those in the city. Look at verse 17. It says, so he is reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. He was conversing with them in verse 18. Also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with them. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. Again, he's, he's being provoked and he's now engaging in conversation. The, the Epicureans were the followers of a man named Epicurus, who was a philosopher uh, born about 342 BC. He was a, a famous Athenian philosopher believed that the gods may be real, but they weren't really concerned with what goes on in this life. So no afterlife, no resurrection, no eternal consequences. Stoic philosophers followed a man named Zeno, born about 340 BC. He taught that each individual had the spark of divine life in himself. And basically, you're in charge of your own destiny. Everybody's the the captain of his own ship, you know, the, the master of his own soul. And into this context drops Paul. And they want to know, like, what... What, what are you bringing? You know, we know what we have. What, are, what, what do you have to bring? In verse 19, it says, They took him and brought him up to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. And the reason why they just enjoyed telling stories is because there was no consequence to their stories. You know, it doesn't really matter whether you're true or whether you're true or whether he's saying the truth. It's like, you know, there's no afterlife anyway, so what does it really matter what we believe? You know, whatever works for you works for you, right? But here, Paul is bringing something different. And what does he do? Number one, he confronts them with their ignorance of God. Verse 22, so Paul stood in the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And this isn't uh, Paul respecting their false religion. This isn't flattery. When uh, Paul says that, uh, you know, I notice that you're very religious, uh, that could be translated as very superstitious. I understand that you're, you're very superstitious here. You've got a lot of beliefs. It's not the normal word for religious. It's, it's superstitious. And he confronts them with this ignorance of the true God. He also confronts them not only with this ignorance of the true God, but with their knowledge of the true God. You're being superstitious. You've got all these things going on, but, but let me tell you, I know that you know who the true God is. Verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Basically, Paul says, Uh, You know, the God of the world, the one who made you in all things, that's the one that I'm coming to talk about. You know, it's it's, it's the God that you know, uh, the the God that you, by by whom you live and move and exist. You you know this God that I'm talking about. You know, it's kind of like when people, you know, if if somebody were to drive a car and they were to ignore the fact that it's been designed and had a manufacturer, it's like, you, you, you know that, you know better than that. You know better than that. That's basically the same thing that he's doing here. 
No excuses for not worshiping the God of the universe. And then he confronts them with their accountability to this God. Look at verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries, their habitations, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. You have already admitted by your own admission, by your own poets, that it's in him that we live and move and exist. I'm reminding you of the God that you do know, but you're playing ignorant. You're playing ignorant of. He's the one who ordains where you live, your appointed times, your boundaries, your habitations. Why tell us all that, Paul? Because this God has purposefully ordered this universe in such a way to make it clear that he is the answer that you're looking for. This is what God has done. And he confronts them with their obligation to repent. Verse 29, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of thought, of art and thought of man. If you, you know that you're the children of God, you know that you uh, didn't come from non-living matter like gold and silver or stone. You came from a living one. And then next, he confronts them with the word of God. Look at verse 30. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring. What's that? When he says God is now declaring, what is that? That is the word of God. <laughs> Let me tell you what God says. Let me tell you what God says. God is now declaring. What is he declaring? God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul is saying uh, it's, it's, it time's, time's over for your foolish and superstitious religion. God is now declaring something. He's declaring that all men should repent. And by the way, he's, uh, he's furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. But, but hold on, Paul, I've never seen Jesus come out of the tomb. I've, I've never seen him raised from the dead. I just told you that he was raised from the dead. I'm declaring to you that he's raised from the dead. And I'm declaring to you that you must repent. And there's all kinds of reasons that, Peter, uh, that uh, Paul could have given for the resurrected Christ. You know, he could have said, well, hey, you know, you can come with me to the tomb, you know, and we can look at that, and, you know, we can just imagine what might have happened there. You know, maybe somebody has the folded grave clothes. Maybe I can find those and show them to you and proof and say like, hey, look at these grave clothes. How do you think they got folded like this? You know, there are all kinds of reasons that he could have, you know, given to say, hey, look at this or look at that. But no, he says, I'm telling you what God has declared. God has declared that you must repent and God has furnished proof by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Well, how do we know that? I just told you so. (laughs) I just told you so. Paul bypasses all of these proofs that sometimes we rely on to say that this is what God God declares. I'm not sure if you understand the power and authority of what Paul has just communicated. What What he's really saying is that our faith ultimately does not rest on human reason, but on the surety of God's promises. And if you look at the way Paul consistently reasoned with people, it was from the scriptures. It was from the revelation of God in the world, and from the revelation of God in the scriptures. That's exactly what he does here in Acts 17. Let me, let me talk about what you already know. You already know that there's a God who made you. You already know that you've sinned against this God. And this God, who you know, is declaring to you that you must repent. In his word. This is, this is the declaration of God. So, so when we look at Acts 17, we're not to divorce this from Paul using scripture. So even if somebody says, well, I, I don't really know if I believe in your Bible. Well, let me tell you what you do know. You know that there's a God. You know that you sinned against him. And this God, who you know, is now declaring that you must repent. 
And the only way that he's made out for any of us is through Jesus Christ. That's exactly what Paul is doing. He's not resting this argument on anything that you can just arrive at humanly. It's not through what we can see and perceive. It's not what's entered into our heart. It's what God has revealed to us. There is no other way for us to get to God except that God comes down to us. You understand that? God has to reveal himself to us in order for us to know God. You can't get there from here. God has to reveal this to you. That's what our faith rests on. Rest on Jesus Christ and on the word of God. And what does Jesus say in Luke chapter 16? Remember the story about uh, Lazarus and the, the rich man, the rich man who feasted sumptuously every day, the, you know, Lazarus who was, you know, cast out on the side and, you know, the dogs are licking his sores and then things are switched. After they die, after they pass on, now the rich man is lift up his eyes in the flames and Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham. And what does, what does the, the rich man say? Hey, Abraham, <laughs> Abraham, can you do me a solid? Can you do me a favor? Can, can you send Lazarus as if he's still in charge? Can you send Lazarus, you know, back to earth to, to warn my brothers for me that they don't come to this place? And, and what, what, does, what, what, does, uh, what does Abraham say as Jesus is, is showing his words here? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. They've got Moses and the prophets. They have what? The word of God. You know, Moses and the prophets was a, a, a term that was used, a, a phrase that was used to talk about the, the word of God, the, the law and the, the prophets. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. He says, oh, oh, no, Father Abraham. No, Abraham. Only if somebody were to come back from the dead, then they would believe. I mean, it's got to be something miraculous to turn these people over. And Abraham responds in Luke 16, 31, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. A lot of times we think that there's got to be something, something more. There's got to be something different. Jesus says the word of God is enough. <laughs> if, if they have this, they have enough to believe. We can't abandon our commitment to the scriptures even as we defend the scriptures. And you have no certainty in life apart from the revelation of God. Why don't you flip back to 1 Peter 3 with me? Spoke about the, the broader context here of uh, 1 Peter 3. Like I said, that this is often overlooked in, uh, in apologetics, sadly. Uh, but we need to be zealous for good works. Uh, we need to be uh, uh, committed to the, to the scriptures, you know, to, to, the, to the word of, of God is what we rely on. Our confidence is in the word of God. You know, we communicate our commitment to, uh, to Jesus Christ as Lord. You know, we're, we're defending our hope. We're to have the right kind of character. We spoke about that. We're not mean-spirited or disrespectful. And then there's this last section that we didn't cover last time, but it's over in 1 Peter 3, starting at verse 16. It says, and, in addition to all these other things that we've already said, and keep a good conscience. So that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. This is such an overlooked aspect of defending the faith because so many people are impressed with arguments coming from the lips and we forget completely about the argument that comes from the life. And you can completely destroy your testimony by your actions. There's a popular apologist from Canada who's actually been to our church before. And he wrote this in his Facebook account. It is with great sadness that I must inform you that I have been guilty of moral failure and will not longer be involved in 
public ministry. I've spoken with the elders of my church, and they have determined that my sin disqualifies me from the ministry. This means that I will no longer be involved in teaching, preaching, or apologetics. I'm sorry for the shame my sin has brought upon the name of Christ and for the hurt I have caused. Please pray for me. And there was an atheist that picked up on this story. He says, when a public Christian figure is exposed, it shouldn't be swept under the rug, especially for someone who believes Christianity and morality are synonymous. Now, an atheist has no foundation for saying that because how can he call anything right or wrong or what ought to be done, right? An atheist has no justification for calling anything right or wrong. But I don't disagree with him. I don't disagree with what he says. Many of us are aware of another popular apologist who was exposed this year after his death. It was devastating and heartbreaking to watch the ministry go up in flames in the last couple of months. I actually remember meeting this apologist in a hallway at Johns Hopkins University a number of years ago. I saw him in an auditorium the night before, and the place was packed as people from all over the room asked questions. And I was impressed by his ability to engage with people, to think on his feet, to answer questions. But we're instructed to have a, a good conscience, right? It's more than just the ability to answer questions and to engage with people. When your life doesn't back it up, your entire ministry can go up in smoke. Verse 16 says, keep a good conscience. Both the the English word for conscience and the the Greek word mean the same thing, literally with knowledge. You know, in our English, con means with, and science is the word for knowledge. The same is true in Greek. Uh, Synodesis, uh, soon means with, and adon, where it comes from, is the word for knowledge. So when you sin, even when nobody else is there, guess who's there as a witness? Your own knowledge is there. You know what happened, right? Nobody else might be in the room, but you know. You know what the truth is. You know what really took place. Conscience refers to that faculty of the mind that stands as a constant witness. It's the umpire in your mind that either accuses you when you go foul or it excuses you when you go fair, right? It's the umpire. It, it, it says, no, that, that's, that's out of bounds. That's wrong. And that conscience is informed in part by the law of God. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 14, it speaks about the work of the conscience. It says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So even an unbeliever has a conscience that basically lets them know, like, no, that's right and that's wrong. That's why an atheist can say, when a public figure, Christian figure is exposed, it shouldn't be swept under the rug. The reason that he can say that and it actually be true is because God has given him a conscience that registers that. and says that's that's what's supposed to happen. Even though he's inconsistent with his conscience, you know, the conscience is like, you know, the, the broken clock that's right twice a day. He can still say things that are true. The work of the law in his mind tells him the difference between right and wrong. He doesn't want to admit where that comes from, but it still has a conscience. The believer is supposed to keep his conscience clean. What does that mean? It means we're supposed to act consistently with what we know to be right. MacArthur uh, pictures the the conscience like a, a skylight instead of a lamp. It's not its own light, but it allows the light in. And we need to keep it clean so that the light can remain bright. First Timothy speaks about the conscience becoming seared when we're insensitive to our conscience by means of hypocrisy. 
continuing to do the wrong thing and not doing anything about it? Like, I know it's wrong, but I'm going to play games and do this over here when I know this is the right thing to do? It's like we're, we're searing the conscience. We're, we're, we're defiling the conscience. 1 Timothy 4 says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. You can, you can harden your conscience through lies, either the lies that you tell yourself or the lies that you sit under, but we still can't completely shut the light of the conscience out. Even hardened unbelievers still have, every now and then, they're, they're tweaked by their conscience. You know, something, something says that's not right. They feel the pain of it. But what about the believer? The believer is supposed to keep the, the good conscience, keep it clean. We shouldn't live in any known violations of our conscience, especially if we're attempting to bear witness to the truth. We listen to the umpire upstairs. If you remember Paul, in Acts chapter 21, the apostle Paul was taken into Roman custody in Jerusalem simply uh, because he was uh, uh, standing for the truth. He was accused of doing wrong, even though he did nothing wrong. And then in Acts 23, he was placed before his Jewish brethren to give a defense, and listen to how he responds. Paul, in Acts 23, verse 1, he says, it says, intently looking at the council, he says, brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God until this day. In Acts 24, he was brought before, uh, uh, again, before a uh, uh, another council in, uh, in Caesarea. He's standing before the, the, the governor of Judea. In Acts 24 and verse 16, it says, I do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. When Paul defended his apostleship before the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 1.12, he says, our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience. And again, in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 2, he says, we've renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. I'm, I'm, I'm clean. I'm clean before you. An effective witness for Christ requires a clean conscience before Christ. doesn't mean that we maintain sinless perfection, but what it does mean is that when we violate the conscience, that we admit that before God and we say the same thing that he says about our sin, right? 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins... He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it's the blood of Christ that washes the conscience clean. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So what does that mean? You violate your conscience, you go before God and you admit it. The Bible says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. And it's devastating to watch people who ignore their conscience, who make shipwreck of the faith. First Timothy 1.19 says, Keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. And it's only by keeping your conscience clean that you can stand before your accusers. Just to give you an example, remember when uh, Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate? Now, now here's the thing, you're not going to stop all false accusations from coming, Right? You're still going to be accused. People can still be accused even when you're doing nothing wrong. You can still be accused. But what is your defense during that time when you are being accused? My conscience doesn't convict me. I can still stand and give a clear testimony for Jesus Christ because I know that within myself I have no knowledge of the wrong that they're accusing me of. That's the only way that you can stand in a time when you're being accused. 
When Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, there were all kinds of false accusations against Christ, right? But in the end, Pontius Pilate just couldn't bring himself to condemn Jesus. Why? I find no guilt with this man. I I can't put my finger on anything that he's done wrong. Like he's wanting to condemn him to please the the crowds, but there's nothing that he's done wrong. I, I can't find anything that he's done wrong. Luke 23, verse 22. Why? What, what evil has the man done? I found in him no guilt. He still accused Jesus in a sense because he still condemned him to death. He turned him over to his tormentors and it didn't end well for Pilate. According to Eusebius, the Christian historian, Pilate ended his life with an unavoidable suicide. It didn't end well for, for Pilate. But he falsely accused Jesus, but he, he didn't have any reason to do it. If you remember the life of Christ, all the false accusations that were hurled against Jesus, and Judas was the one who had turned him over to his tormentors. He was the one who, uh, who betrayed Jesus Christ into the hands of godless men. But in the end, Judas couldn't live with that. Matthew 27, verse 4 says, I've, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. There's nothing that he's actually done that's wrong. He, he falsely accused Jesus Christ, but, but he couldn't live with himself. There's something that ate him up about that. Remember the thief on the cross? As the accusations are being piled on to Jesus, and the thief jumps in, starts accusing Jesus as well, hurling abuse at Jesus Christ. But in the end, at least... One of the men who was there said, this man has done nothing wrong. What, what am I doing accusing him for? I'm, I'm accusing him wrongly, falsely. Remember the centurion? There was the, the soldiers who mocked Jesus, who kind of joined in the, the, you know, the, the charade, you know, pretending that he was a king so they could spit in his face and strike him on the head with the reed. But as this one centurion Watch Jesus in the way he died. He said, surely this man was the son of God. He's giving these false accusations, but, but in the end they couldn't live with it. I can't live with this false accusation. The centurion turned. The thief on the Christ turned. Judas went his own way, and Pontius Pilate killed himself. Somehow, the more you accuse an innocent man, the more the accusations actually pile up on your own conscience. If that man is clear in his conscience, the more accusations you pile on him, the more you attack him, is the more you're actually piling accusation on yourself. And it will either drive you insane or drive you to the Savior. And that's the kind of opportunity that each and every one of us have if we're willing to suffer even for doing what's right. That if I stand and I know that, you know what, I'm clear, I've done nothing wrong, I I don't like what I'm going through, but but I'm not going to fear them. I'm not going to be intimidated by them. I know what I believe. I know who I trust in. I know where my hope is. And I know that in my conscience, I've done nothing wrong to deserve this. And if you're willing to stand on that day, the false accusations that are piled up on you are actually going to fly right back onto the heads of those people who are trying to slander you. Look at uh, verse 16. It says, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. It's like they can't stand themselves. I know I'm attacking this Christian and all he does is good. 
Every time I try to throw another accusation, he, he tries to bless me. He tries to encourage me. He says he's praying for me. What's wrong with this guy? And all of a sudden, there's this accusation that's piling on top of you. Like, what am I doing? And I'm the one that's being shamed. I'm trying to shame him. I'm trying to throw the shame on this Christian. But I'm the one that's feeling the shame. And some of you might be in that spot even right now where you're standing up for the, the sake of, of Christ, where you're, you're trying to give testimony to Christ and it's difficult and you're feeling the accusations. But if your conscience is clear, you can stand up even under that and know that as much shame as they're trying to pile on me, that they're the ones who are being shamed. They're the ones who are feeling the regret because of what they've done. And verse 17 gives the explanation why. Because it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong because there is a result, there is a good result of standing for what's right even in the day of adversity. Remember John Bunyan? His Pilgrim's Progress was a, is a book that's, uh, that's second only to the, to the scriptures and the, the, its popularity. But sometimes we forget where he wrote it. He wrote the Christian, Christian's Progress the Pilgrim's Progress in the, the Bedford County Jail in England. John Bunyan wasn't a, a stranger to suffering. He lost his first wife. He lost his oldest daughter. One of his daughters was uh, born blind. And he suffered in prison for 12 years. 12 years in prison. Bunyan was arrested under what was known as the Conventicle Act in England, which made it an offense to attend a religious gathering. Other than the approved parish church, with more than five people outside of your family. We've never heard that before. It was a government overreach into the church, and they tried to limit the gathering to five families or less. And the offense was punishable by three months imprisonment, followed by banishment or execution if the person failed to comply. And all that Bunyan had to do to escape his cell was to agree not to preach. He was urged to quit preaching for the sake of caring for his wife and his children. He was urged to think about the miseries that he would bring upon them. But he said, I cannot quit preaching because God has called me to preach. I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. I cannot violate my conscience in order to satisfy men. This is my conviction before God. I will not sacrifice my conscience to go free. He said, I would rather suffer if frail life might continue so long till the moss grows on my eyebrows than violate my conviction. He said, the parting with my wife and my poor children has often been to me in this place as the pulling of my flesh from the bones. And not only that, because I'm somewhat too fond of these great mercies, speaking about his family, but also because I should have often brought to my mind the many hardships and miseries and wants that my poor family was likely to meet with with should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child, who lays nearer to my heart than all I have besides? Oh, the thought of the hardship I thought my blind one might undergo would break my heart to pieces. But yet, recalling myself, I thought I must venture all with God. Though it go to the quick to leave you, all I saw in this condition I was a man who was pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and children. Yet I thought, I must do it, I must do it. Why? For it is better, if God should will it so, to suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. I would rather follow my conscience before God, even if it seems like it's killing me. 
Suffering for doing what is right is far better than making a butchery of your conscience to do what is wrong. And keeping a clean conscience before men can shame those who attack you. This is a timely word. First Peter has a, a lot to remind us of, and I pray that the Lord would grant us all the, the kind of strength of conviction that, that Peter speaks about here, and that we would be known as a congregation that can stand up boldly and give testimony for Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for this truth. My Father, we pray that you would allow your truth to, to really sink deep into our hearts, that you'd grant us uh, conviction, uh, that you'd allow us to, uh, to follow after you. My Father, that you would remind us of, uh, of even the benefits of suffering if we do so under the will of God, uh, that we wouldn't make a butchery of our conscience, and Father, that we would not be found in violation of the, the word of God as we're trying to uphold it at the same time. Uh, Father, I pray that you'd protect us from scandal, that you would protect us from uh, uh, those that would uh, bring reproach upon the name of, of Christ, Lord, even here among us. Uh, Father, I pray that we would uh, be able to, uh, uh, to be right representatives of you, that we would be the ambassadors that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.